The words that I'd like to direct your attention to this afternoon are found in the book of Mark. And we'll be looking at Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 32. Or 30, through verse 30. And King Herod heard of it. For his name had become well known, and people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he's Elijah. And others were saying, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he swore to her. Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, Yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. Please pray with me. Or this is a gruesome passage. And we know that you've given us your word that we might learn from it, that we might be taught, that we might be wise and not seduced through folly. And so I pray that you would work through your word to strengthen our wisdom and strengthen our resolve and strengthen our confidence in you and also our awareness of our need to be alert 
from the temptations that will bombard us in our life. And Lord, we are aware that very little is said about you in this passage, for it's about John and even about Herod. But it's our desire that even so, you, Christ, would be exalted through this message. And especially even in our hearts as we learn from it. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Every person has their price. What's yours? What would you be willing to take in order to turn your back on everything that you have believed? What would it take? When I was in seminary during a lecture on the various temptations that we would face in the ministry, one of the most striking comments that I remember from all of my seminary experience was was made during that lecture. And our professor stopped in the middle of the lecture and he looked us straight in the eye and he said these words, Every man has his price. Know what yours is. You can see why that would be such a striking comment, because it's not particularly assuring. And was it even true? Does every man have their price? Well, I believe the reason he said that was because he wanted us to know where we are particularly weak. Because it's where we are weak that Satan will seek to exploit us and to ruin us, and to tear apart everything that we have lived for as far as Christ is concerned. He wanted us to know where we were weak, and we needed to know what temptations we were going to be most prone to capitulate to, so that when they would come, we would see it, and we'd be able to stand firm. And the story before us is one of the most notorious temptations in all of history. It's one we're probably familiar with. And it depicts a man who is torn between his interest for the truth and his care for his own pride and his own lusts. And it serves as an example of the battle each of us face. Really, in this passage, Herod is, is depicted as all of us, as every man. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I say that because I'm aware of the temptation as Christians as we come to a passage to put ourselves in the place of John the Baptist, who's kind of the hero in this story. Rather than realizing that more of us can probably relate to what Herod is going through than what the Baptist is going through. Herod is really every man. Every man who knows the right thing to do and yet is resistant to repent and do the right thing. Because something else is keeping him from turning. 
And we need to, again, as we look at this passage, recall the context, because that's critical in us understanding really what's going on. Remember that this story of the execution of John the Baptist comes in the middle of what we would call a Markin sandwich. Throughout Mark's gospel, he uses this technique where he'll begin a story, interrupt it with another story, and then complete the story later on. That's why I had today's reading to go all the way to verse 30, because it really completes the story again. Last week, we looked at uh, Jesus' instruction to the disciples as he sent them out into Galilee to proclaim the gospel of repentance and to continue his ministry. And then Mark interrupts that story to tell us of John the Baptist. And then he completes it again in verse 30 with the apostles returning. And it's also helpful to recall that in this story, Mark is actually even going back in time. So, so this is not chronological. Because John the Baptist was thrown in prison and beheaded before Jesus sent his apostles out. And so Mark is being very particular. He wants us to associate what the apostles are going out doing in proclaiming the gospel of repentance with what John the Baptist did and what happened to him. There should be some association with what is going on with the apostles and with what happened to John the Baptist. So really the the point of this interruption, this Mark and Sandwich, is to demonstrate what the disciples will be up against as they go and proclaim this gospel of repentance. What will be going on in people's hearts and minds as they hear the word taught? Some people are going to hear the word taught and they're going to hate them for it because it's going to be a completely distasteful message. Some people may even want to kill them. Other people are going to be fascinated by it. Maybe for the first time, they've heard the Word of God clearly taught. And they're going to be drawn to it. They're going to be compelled. They're going to, they're going to see the truth and the glory in it. And yet, the lusts of this world, their own pride, is going to keep them from repenting. And so this helps not only the disciples know what they're up against, but it helps us to know what we are up against if we too want to follow in their footsteps. Again, the passage before us is really about the death of John the Baptist, but John the Baptist isn't actually the main character. The main character is Herod. And so the focus is really upon his being torn by temptation and truth. And that tension that he's in. And so again, Herod is, again, just an example of every man who hears the word of God and is torn between will they listen to it and act upon it or will they just listen and ignore it and perish because of it. He's all of us, if we're honest. So again, this passage is pulling back the veil about what's going on in the hearts of all of us as we read or hear the Word of God taught. Are we just going to listen and be like Herod? Or are we going to respond and be like John? 
So the outline for this passage really depicts two aspects of Herod. The first, his fear. The second, his folly. We'll begin by looking at Herod's fear in verses 14 through 20. My notes didn't come in. That's fine. It's sufficient. To help us understand who Herod was, um, Herod, there's a number of Herods that are spoken of in, in, in Scripture. The first we're familiar with was Herod the Great. And he was one of the greatest leaders in all of Jerusalem, but he was also ruthless. Um, we're first confronted with him in the Gospels, particularly the Christmas story. And Herod the Great is the one who is so paranoid that about his own rule that when he hears that the Messiah has been born in Bethlehem, he sends out a slaughter squad to kill all the young babies in Bethlehem. Well, that, was, that Herod the Great had a number of children, one of whom is the Herod in this story, Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas, his son, married a Nabataean princess. But he divorced her in order to marry the other woman in the story named Herodias, who was at that time his brother's wife. His brother's name was Philip. And this was the reason for John the Baptist preaching against him. Because it says very clearly in the law that you cannot marry your brother's wife. The only exception would be if your brother died. Then, there, then you could marry your brother's wife if you weren't already married, according to the, the, the Levite Leveritic marriage. So he ignores John, but he listens to John. Herod also was listening to other things, for we see in verse 13 that he had heard that, even after he had beheaded John, that there was someone else going forth with miraculous powers preaching the same message of repentance. And so we see in verse 13 that he thinks it's John the Baptist who's risen from the dead. Other people said it was Elijah, but he says, no, no. In fact, it says he kept saying constantly, no, no, this is John the Baptist whom I beheaded. Which shows a bit of the paranoia that was going on in Herod and the guilt that he must have felt after he had killed John. Now, we know that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And we also know in the story that um, Jesus himself was raised from the dead. We just sung about that. But for Herod to believe that John the Baptist had risen from the dead is is really outlandish. Because these are the only other instances, except a few in the Old Testament, where somebody had risen from the dead And again, it demonstrates that Herod knew that John was a righteous man. If God was going to bring him back from the dead, it would be because John did not deserve what happened to him. So it demonstrates this tremendous guilt that Herod must have felt. And Herod really is condemning himself in this statement. He knows what he did was wrong. So he clearly has remorse and fear over his decision to have John executed. Which really begs the question, well then why did he do it? 
If he knew it was so wrong and so evil that John was a righteous man, did not deserve even imprisonment, why did he do it? Well, the text tells us in verse 17, it was on account of his his wife Herodias and his fear of Herodias. Not that he was afraid that Herodias was going to do anything to him, but really, as we, I mean fear in the sense of the fear of her opinion. His desire to please her rather than do what was right. Now Herodias, again, was the granddaughter of Herod the Great. This means that she was both the wife of Herod as well as Herod's niece. So this is giving you a picture of the soap opera of this passage. And she marries the Herod, her uncle, in this story after leaving his brother Philip, who was also her uncle. And when she hears John the Baptist preaching against this marriage, which is clearly wrong, it enrages her. Because the Mosaic law forbade men to marry their brother's wives. But it also shows us something about John the Baptist. That even though Herod and Herodias were disgusted by his proclamation of repentance, he did not back down and remained faithful to his commission to preach that message of repentance, even towards the most powerful people in the land. Even when risking imprisonment and death, he never stopped. He never was silenced. And he paid the price for it, as we see in verse 18. But Herodias didn't appreciate John's calling them out, and therefore she maintained this deep grudge, it says, against him. In her eyes, John was public enemy number one. He was the one that was the biggest nuisance, the biggest threat to her. Amazing that a simple preacher of the truth would be the greatest threat to this princess of Jerusalem. That's telling. And that's something the disciples need to be aware of. That's how threatening the truth can be to an unbeliever who is aware of their sin. It reminds me of what Mary, Queen of Scots, once said. This... This is historically true. She said that she feared the prayers of John Knox more than an army of 10,000 men. Again, another preacher of righteousness confronting one of the most powerful people in the world with just simple truth. And interestingly, Herodias would have had John immediately put to death, but Herod wouldn't let it happen. So he was was willing to to capitulate to his wife to let him be imprisoned, but he would not go so far as to put him to death. So again, you see this tension of wanting to please his wife and hold on to his illicit relationship and yet being drawn by the truth. And he believed, apparently, that he he could remain in that tension for a significant amount of time, maybe indefinitely. He wouldn't let him be executed. We see that in verse 20, because he was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. 
He kept him safe. But the text also says that he was very perplexed. That is, he could find no way out. He was in a double bind. He could not live comfortably in sin with his wife while John lived. But he also knew that John spoke the truth. And interestingly, it says that, also, it says that he enjoyed listening to him. So it wasn't that he was like, ooh, ah, ugh, I don't like what I, what I hear. In fact, even though he knew he was wrong, even though he knew he was guilty, you know, even though he knew he needed to repent, he used to enjoy listening to him. Even though John was calling him out publicly and piercing him with sharp words directly, even calling him out directly, Herod enjoyed hearing the truth. And maybe that was because everything around him was characterized by lies and deception and intrigue. Just that little bit of light was, was refreshing. And for the time he had it, he just enjoyed basking in that light. John just cut through the fog and he laid it straight. And Herod appreciated that. But again, we see that Herod is still caught between two fears. A healthy fear of the Word of God, proclaimed by John, and an, an illicit fear, a corrupting fear, of caring what his wife thought. And he tried to live for a while and compromise, but in time, all compromises lead to destruction. When greater temptations incur. This brings us to Herod's folly. There's a number of ways we see Herod's foolishness in this passage. The first is his folly of carelessness. Notice that we see that Herodias was biding her time. She was waiting to unleash her anger upon John, just like a serpent would wait patiently before the hole of a mouse till that mouse emerged and then immediately would clamp its jaws upon it. When the opportunity arrived, she struck. The text actually says she found a strategic day. When the strategic day arrived, a moment of opportunity, she took advantage of it. The day she used was Herod's birthday. Because she knew that at Herod's birthday she could have a party for Herod. And set him up for what he knew would be what she knew would be a great temptation for him. It was an excuse to surround him with all the movers and shakers in Galilee. It says the, the lords were invited. That, in the Greek, it's the word megos. It means the great ones. So these would be the celebrities of Israel. The famous people. The well-known. Also, the military commanders were invited. These were the, the commanders of at least a thousand soldiers. So you're modern-day colonels and generals and admirals. Also, the leading men of Galilee. The Greek word there is protos. means the first ones. This would have been the aristocracy. All the people with money and power and influence. This is the first key of Herodias' trap. Bringing all these people together to put pressure upon Herod. The second key element in her strategy was to play upon Herod's lust by using her own daughter. 
Notice the emphasis there in the text. Her own daughter. And verse 22 actually tells us that this was just a girl. This, this word would have been used for somebody who had just recently reached puberty. So she was probably a young teenager. Herodias was willing to use her own daughter to salaciously seduce her own husband into a trap in order for her to kill John the Baptist. One commentator said, Such dancing was an almost unprecedented thing for women of rank, or even respectability. It was mimetic and licentious and performed by professional dancers. This is sickening. And yet it shows us the extent that people will go to in order to give vent for their rage. She would stop at nothing to kill this preacher of righteousness. She puts forth her daughter to serve as a professional dancer for Herod and his guests, it says, in order to please them in order to bring them pleasure. And it worked. Herod is so pleased, he vows to give the girl up to half his kingdom. The fact that all this is part of Herodias' strategy, again, reminds us that this wasn't an accident. This wasn't just a whim. It was planned. Albeit it wasn't planned by Herod, it was planned by his wife. Herod was in charge. He was, the, he was the king, and yet Herodias, his wife, played him like a Stradivarius violin. She knew exactly what to do to get what she wanted. But who was the real player behind Herod's temptation? 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour And then he says, therefore, we need to be sober spirit and on the alert. And just I I, I note this because notice how Satan used Herodias's uh, guilt and anger. And also Herod's fear and pride. He struck where these people were weak in order to bring about his designs to kill God's prophet. Who's really getting played? Yes, Herod's getting played, but so is Herodias. But the reality is, so is anybody who knows the right thing to do, who hears God's word clearly spoken and then thinks they could live unrepentantly and, let, and it won't affect them a bit. Anybody who ignores God's word is getting played. He... Satan uses laziness and then lust to take down King David and then later to kill Uriah, which of course destroys the kingdom of Israel. Satan used envy and pride to take down Cain and then Abel. In fact, God's warning to Cain right before he fell is well worth remembering. He says in Genesis 4, 6, and 7, 
to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Do you see this, this plea for repentance? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is against you. But you must rule over it. You need to say no, Cain, to that temptation. God knows what's going on in Cain's heart. He knew what was going on in David's heart. He knew what was going on in Herod's heart. That's why he sent John, who pled with him, repent or you will be destroyed. But he wouldn't listen. And so we also need to be aware of where these temptations in our life come from. Our fear. Our stress. Our lust. Our laziness. Love of power. Pride. Where do those things really come from? Who's really playing upon those desires in our heart? See, Satan is no mythical being. He's not walking around in red tights with a pitchfork. He hates you. And he will do everything he can to destroy you. In fact, whether you're a Christian or not, especially if you're a Christian, but even if you're not, he wants to take you down. He wants to own you and play you in order to get at Christ. And so we need to be of sober spirit and be on alert, lest like Herod, we become his pawn. See, Herod was so well played, he vows to give the girl up to half his kingdom. And this is stunning. But it's not just stunning because it's such an outlandish vow to make. And it's not just stunning because of the circumstances in which he makes this vow, his sickening lust for his stepdaughter. But really, what's most stunning is Herod was probably quoting Scripture here. Because these are the very same words that Ahasuerus gives to Esther when she comes into his throne room and he says, whatever you want, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. Which shows us the second folly of Herod, the folly of perverting Scripture. See, Herod was certainly familiar with this story, which, which makes one even wonder if he had recently heard John the Baptist even preaching on the book of Esther, which would be quite likely. And his very words seem to indicate that probably Harry, Herod fancied himself an Ahasuerus ruling his kingdom. And when he looked upon his niece, he saw her as his Esther. And it shows the folly of perverting Scripture. How even biblically literate people can hear the Word of God and then he twists the Word of God, pervert the Scripture in order to justify their own illicit behavior. And brothers and sisters, this happens all the time. So I'll give you some examples 
that I have come across in my life in ministry. Maybe you've, in fact, you've probably all heard Matthew 7.21 twisted. Sorry, it's Matthew 7.1 twisted. Judge not lest you be judged. It's frequently used by many people as a defense when you confront them in their sin. Oh, you can't judge me because you're told you can't judge. That's not what the passage is saying. It's frequently abused to be used as that. We're commanded to confront people in sin. Also, 1 Corinthians 15.22, I've heard used to justify gluttony. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Seriously, I've heard that. I've also heard 1 Timothy 6.17 used to justify drug abuse. God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God's given us to it, enjoy it. We'd be wrong not to. I've heard that verse used to justify lots of sin. And usually from pastors. Reformed pastors. So again, this isn't, this isn't just some out there sort of thing. This is the stuff that happens within our own ranks. Galatians 3.28 is frequently used to undermine the clearly established biblical roles for men and women. When Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, there's no male or female for you're all one in Christ Jesus. As if Paul was trying to say, oh, there really is no sexes anymore. There really is no such thing as slavery anymore. Regardless of everything he says in the rest of Scripture. Paul's talking about salvation here. That salvation is available to everyone. He's not tearing apart his created ordinance for roles within a marriage. I've also heard this passage used to justify the idolatry of exercise. 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. People say, it says, it says right there, bodily training is of some value. But the very point of the passage, and it is of some value, but the very point of the passage is it's not as valuable as training for godliness. And yet the very people who would use that scripture are saying, it's okay for me to spend 20 hours a week in the gym because the Bible says it's valuable. But they never spend any time in the Word of God. Clearly abusing the very point of the scripture. And these aren't coming from liberal denominations. These are coming from friends of mine. Whether they're pastors or just naive people, such perverting of Scripture happens all the time, and Herod's doing the same thing right here in the most sickening way. And it leads, like all twisting of Scripture, to one of the most horrific acts in history. Because Herod knew John was a righteous man. Even Jesus said that among all those born of women, none is greater than John. Herod killed him. Because of this sick twisting of Holy Scripture. You see that? That's what the twisting of Scripture does. In a manner of speaking, With this vow, Herod was offering the world 
on a platter to this girl. And so when she's offered this, she doesn't know what to ask for. Like, this is the greatest opportunity ever. I can get free college tuition. I can get a pony. I mean, she doesn't know what to ask for. So she goes to her mom. She knows her mom knows her way with the world. But her mom, instead of thinking of her daughter's future, uses this opportunity to indulge her rage. She tells her to ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And again, this is a true story. It's not just some horror flick, some soap opera. This is real. A gruesome request. But again, it demonstrates how much Herodias Herodias was enraged. But it also shows what enraged her. Because what she asked for. She didn't just simply say, kill John the Baptist. What she asked for? Let me see his head. Why the head? In fact, the, the text emphasizes the head multiple times here. Why the head? Because it's the head that speaks. It's the head that was offensive to her. She wanted to cut off the conviction. And she assumed that if she could silence John, then that condemnation that she felt every time she heard his words would cease. And this demonstrates her folly in trying to escape condemnation by sinning more. That's the third folly. The folly of thinking you can escape condemnation by sinning more. But this is just like an ostrich ostrich that sticks its head in the ground when it sees a lion coming. Thinking if it can just hide... It's going to be safe. But that doesn't decrease the danger. It only increases it. The line says, wow, it's a low-hanging fruit. This was the same trap David fell into when he thought he could cover up his adultery with Bathsheba by killing Uriah. This is the same trap Cain fell into when he killed Abel. And in fact, this is the impetus behind every martyrdom that has taken place in the history of the world. But wiping out God's messengers does not wipe away condemnation. And we need to be aware of this too. This isn't because even though we might not seek to kill somebody because we don't like that we say, but even slandering somebody, defaming their name because you don't like what they say because they've convicted you. They've confronted you in sin. Slandering them doesn't wipe away your condemnation. It just sets you up for greater condemnation. And there's only one way Herodias could have escaped her condemnation and sin. And again, that was the very way that John the Baptist proclaimed to her. Repent. He wasn't saying that because he hated her. He wasn't saying that to be mean. He wasn't saying it to be self-righteous. He was commanded by God to proclaim that message. And if anybody, but especially those in power, were unwilling to repent from their sin, he needed to let them know. He needed to plead with them to repent. But she killed the very man who was pointing out the only way she'd escape. 
I mean, again, this is like shooting a firefighter who runs into your house to pull you out of a burning building. She kills him. The only person who was willing to tell her the means of salvation. So besides the folly of carelessness and the folly of perverting Scripture and the folly folly of trying to escape guilt by sinning more, we also see, finally, the folly of pride. See, when Herodias springs her trap, we're told that Herod was extremely sorry. Herod realized all the implications of this request. He was now going to be the murderer of one of the greatest prophets in history. The very man whom he feared and respected. And really up until this moment, we're kind of not certain about what's really going on in Herod's heart. But at this moment, Herod's true nature is really revealed. Because up till now, somebody might have concluded, well, Herod's really a good guy. Because he does, even though his wife wants her, uh, John the Baptist dead, he holds her off. He's protecting John. In his heart of hearts, Herod's a good guy. He's protecting John. And he likes to listen to John. Maybe he's just looking for another... He wants John around him all the time so he could hear his word. Many people might have been deceived into thinking, Herod's really not that bad. But this moment shows what really ruled Herod's life. His pride. Because even though he was exceedingly sorry, it says yet in verse 26, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to, re- to refuse her. That's why he didn't back down. Because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. Because of his pride. Because of his pride, he killed the man he most respected and feared. Because of his pride. At the end of the day, Herod preferred to execute an innocent man than to execute his pride. And this shows us that Herod's greatest threat wasn't John. It wasn't even Herodias. Herod's greatest threat was his own heart. And this is the ultimate reason he put him to death. And this is the real enemy that we are up against as we go and proclaim God's word to other people. This is what we're up against. When we tell people the truth about what God has said. Even when we share with them the greatest news in all of history, that they could be freed from their slavery to sin if they would just repent and believe in Christ. Because of their pride, people will hate you. In fact, verses 30 to 32, as this story concludes, remind us again that this story is meant to inform us what the disciples would be up against as they go forth and proclaim a message of repentance. 
See, the people that the disciples would be preaching to would be Herods and Herodias's. People who would hate them for this message and want them immediately to be killed. And others who would like the message, but over time would fall away because they love their lusts more. They will preach to people who are enslaved to their fear. People who are foolishly naive of their susceptibility to sin. Who will pervert the Scriptures in order to justify their own lusts. And who will ignore their need to repent, thinking that they can escape their guilt by sinning more. These are the people that that the apostles are going to be preaching to. And even when they expressed interest in the truth, at the end of the day, they will not be willing to forsake their pride. And because this is the people that the, uh, that the apostles are preaching to, this is the very reason that all of them except once will be, except one, sorry, all of them except one will be persecuted for what they preach. The only one to escape persecution is Judas. And that's because he abandons Christ, just like Herod did. He sells himself out. All of the apostles will face a martyr's death except John. But even John died in exile on the island of Patmos under heavy labor, though he was over 90 years old. And that after being thrown in a vat of boiling oil. This is what the disciples are up against. That's why the story is here. Both to tell us what's going on in the heart of man as they hear the Word of God, but also to know as we go forth and proclaim, this is what we're up against. And so what are the takeaways? As we hear this passage, how do we apply it? Well, these are my thoughts. There would have been three, but didn't get transferred. Sorry. The first is expect persecution for preaching repentance. Expect persecution for preaching repentance. Repentance is an unpopular message. So don't expect popularity if you're going to follow Christ. You will lose friends and you will make enemies. And so don't be shocked if people hate you because it's not you, ultimately. Right? Why did John die? It wasn't really John. It was John's message. And likewise, when you're hated, don't be shocked. Don't be swayed. Don't be tempted to stop preaching. Recognize it's a mark of faithfulness. You want to be like John the Baptist. As Jesus said, none born among women was greater than John. That's the example we want. And so when you face that resistance, don't panic. It's expected. And it's okay. Now I'm not saying don't, if you're a jerk and you get persecuted, you know, you deserved it, right? 
But if you're pursuing righteousness, you're trying to honor Christ, and you're just proclaiming the truth in love with a desire to truly help people like John the Baptist did, don't be surprised, even though you care about those people, and they and you're doing the best you can to care about them. Don't be surprised if they resist it. Secondly, recognize the danger of failing to repent. If there is any area in your life that is not lining up with God's Word, you must repent. You must repent from it. A failure to repent from any known sin is just setting yourself up to be played by Satan. Don't be stupid like Herod. I don't think anybody here, as you read the story of Herod, is like, that's a wise dude. I want to be like that. But realize, if if you know of any sin in your life that you're not willing to repent from, that's you. That's you. Don't think that you'll escape ruining your own life and ruining the lives of God's servants By being unwilling to repent from your sin. It will kill you. Remember what God told Cain. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is against you. And you must master it. Do you hear that? It's not an option, Christian. It's not an option. You will either be like Herod and kill the prophets and destroy your soul. Or you'll be like John. What a man sows, he will reap. You cannot remain in sin without experiencing its destructive effects. As it says in the book of Proverbs, you can't play with fire and avoid getting burnt. So ask yourself, what areas in your life do not presently line up with God's will? Thirdly, recognize the open opportunity for repentance. I think one of the sweetest things about this passage is the parallels between what's going on in Herod's heart and what goes on in the heart of Simon Peter in the midst of his greatest temptation. Look with me. You might recall that Peter's choice to deny Christ was precipitated by a grandiose oath. I will never deny you, Lord. And remember, that was in front of dinner guests. It was at the Last Supper. Peter also denied Christ. He denied ever knowing Jesus. Why? Because he was confronted by a girl. It was his fear of a girl that led him to deny Christ the third time when the cock crowed. He was also confronted with the same question as Herod. Who do people say that I am? In fact, the questions that come forth at the beginning of this passage is the same question, parallels the question that's asked of Peter. Peter, who do you say that I am? Well, some people say Elijah. Some people say John the Baptist. Who do you say that I am, Peter? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now recognize, Herod didn't know who Jesus was in the beginning of this passage. He thought it was John the Baptist. Peter did. And he still denied him. 
Peter knew who Jesus was. The difference, though, between the two is that after sinning, Peter repented. Herod yielded to his lusts. And he perished in his sins. And he died in shame and in guilt and regret. Herod never repented. But Peter did. And he became known as one of the greatest Christians to ever walk the face of this earth. Do you see that? Grasp that. You might have done horrible things in your life. Things that you don't even want your wife to ever know about. Or your husband. You might have done horrific things. In fact, you might have done something awful just recently. But follow Peter's example. Consider that Herod too had an opportunity to repent. But he never did. But when that opportunity was given to Peter, he did. And God used it to form him into one of the greatest Christians in all of history. And so if you recognize that you have a heart like Herod, that you feel this tension between liking what the Word of God says, but really also liking your lusts, and you feel torn between wanting to be like Christ and wanting to be accepted by the world, you feel that tension, then recognize that what needs to happen is you need your heart to be changed. You need to be saved. You need to be born again. And that opportunity is before you right now. So recognize you're like Herod. The opportunity is there for you to do the right thing. To, to escape being played by Satan. And you can be like Peter and repent. So even if you've committed horrific acts, the opportunity still awaits you as it did for Peter. Don't be a fool and get played like Herod did. Repent and believe that in Christ and in Christ alone is found forgiveness for all of your sins. And His blood can make the foulest clean. As it says in Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Think about how sweet those words would have been to Peter. And how sweet they would have been to Herod if he only would have listened. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that you would help people see the, the, the tremendous folly of sin. Lord, that none of us would be naive to the very real consequences of toying with lust and with pride and with fear. And Lord, I pray that, that our awareness of sin and its destruction would also be the impetus for a, a greater rejoicing in our heart for what You freed us from. Because the only, the only means of being freed from Satan's trap and sin's enslavement is Christ. It's you. You alone have purchased our freedom. None of us, none of us have freed ourselves.
We have simply trusted in your work. Because even while all of us were yet sinners, you were willing to pay the ultimate price so that we could be freed. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who is yet to fully take advantage of that opportunity to repent and believe that you would open their eyes to see the incredible folly of their present situation, that they would not end up like Herod, but that they would be like Peter and like John the Baptist and like your son, holy and blameless on account of what you did. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.